Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Selling Greenville, your favorite real estate podcast here in the upstate of South Carolina. I am your host, Stan McCune, realtor right here in Greenville, South Carolina. And as always, you can find all of my contact information in the show notes. You can reach out to me by text, by email, by phone call. Let me know if you have any real estate needs, if you have any feedback from the show. I'd love to hear from you. But particularly if you do have feedback from the show, why don't you go ahead and give us a rating, give us a review, make sure you subscribe to the show that you don't miss any episodes. We want to make sure that we get our content to everyone that's out there and make sure that uh, we're doing well in Apple's algorithm and the other algorithms that are out there for the other platforms that we're on uh, to make sure that people are able to see the show and to, and to get to know me and to get to know Greenville. One quick thing uh, in addition to all of that, there will be no episode next week for Thanksgiving. I'm sure everyone will be, uh, hopefully, if you're, if you're in a state that isn't restricting things because of COVID, um, that you will be enjoying time with family and friends. I will be enjoying time with family and friends myself. Uh, so I assume that not too many people are going to be listening to podcasts. We will have no episode next week. We will resume after Thanksgiving with Selling Greenville. Uh, Today, we are talking about real estate negotiation, five things uh, that are big mistakes that you make in a real estate negotiation, the five biggest mistakes, at least the the biggest ones that I could think of, Um, and I thought of some more. I I ended up whittling down this list to five, Um, but five mistakes that are made in a real estate negotiation. Now, uh, there are a gazillion books out there that talk about negotiating, and I want to make sure from the get-go here, that I am not trying to say that those books are wrong or uh, you know, trying to offer competing information against uh, some of the psychologists out there or anything. I'm simply sh- stating and talking about in this episode mistakes that I have seen buyers and sellers make and giving some of the rationale behind why those are, are a mistake, why you shouldn't make it, and what else you can do. And the first mistake kind of plays into that little prelude, which is the mistake of thinking that all negotiation is the same and that negotiating a house is like negotiating anything else. I'm sorry, if you believe that and if you've read that, you are flat out wrong. Negotiating a house is very different. Obviously, there are some similarities between negotiating a house and negotiating something else. But it is a completely different type of transaction. For instance, if you're purchasing a car, uh, you go in there, you test drive the car once, uh, maybe you take it to your mechanic uh, if, you, uh, if you so desire, you come back, you negotiate the terms, you buy it, the salesperson, um, I assume that they pretty much get paid that day or that week, um, and you get the car, you pay some money, you get some financing right there. Maybe or not, you were you were pre-approved going into that, um, and you leave. And you spent a few hours in there. You left with the car, and uh, and that's that. Buying a house is completely different than that. You have different parties that are involved. You have usually a lender that's involved on the front end. Then you have realtors who are involved potentially. Then you have. Uh, inspectors and appraisers and and all these other parties and and different places where things can go wrong and different negotiation points, right? That we're not just talking about negotiating on the front end of the transaction. And this podcast isn't just talking about negotiating on the front end of the podcast. 
on the on the front end of the transaction. Sorry, you have to uh, negotiate on the front end when you're getting that initial price. But then, you, when you have uh, your inspections done, you're going to have to negotiate again. You're negotiating repairs, whether you're the buyer or the seller. There's a negotiation that happens there. Um, if you're in a due diligence period as a buyer client or your seller selling to an in, uh, to an investor who has a due diligence period, they might decide to negotiate the price in the middle of the transaction. And they can do that uh, in South Carolina during a what we call a due diligence period. Um, you might have a low appraisal. You might have to then renegotiate, okay, what happens when the appraisal comes in low? Maybe the buyer can't afford to increase their down payment. Maybe they can. Maybe the seller can't afford to come down on the price. Maybe they can. Uh, there are all kinds of negotiations that can happen there. Maybe the CL100 uh, isn't clear. There are all sorts of places where you have to negotiate in a real estate transaction. It's very different than negotiating your salary with your boss. It's very different than negotiating uh, your car purchase with a dealership. And uh, in addition to that, which we'll get into a little bit more here in a second, there's a lot of emotion in real estate transaction. Um not everyone is like this, but there is kind of a common uh, phenomenon, psychological phenomenon that happens with a lot of people where they have to um, almost like grieve uh, the house that they're selling. And in some cases, it might be grieving. In some cases, it might be, you know, all the memories that they're leaving behind. They need to say goodbye, say goodbye to the house, say goodbye to all those memories. I mean, even when I moved last year, my 10-year-old, who uh, at the time was nine, even she at one point at our old house, I, I caught her just outside in the backyard, um, just calmly standing there. And I asked her, hey, what's going on? And she said, you know, I'm just thinking about all the good memories that we had back here. And even her as a nine-year-old, there was kind of like this saying goodbye to the house. And I think that that's a, I, I know that that's a very common phenomenon. You don't experience that. You know, people that are selling cars, they might have some memories, some experiences in them, uh, but it's not the same. People that are other things that you're negotiating, it's not the same. You can't do a one-size-fits-all. And so one of the biggest mistakes for people that are skilled in negotiating, that have experience in negotiation, that have maybe a background in sales is they think, oh, we're just buying or selling a house. This is like any other thing in the world that we're negotiating. Um, here, I read in this book, or I, I've learned in my sales uh, process. This is a technique for negotiating. It doesn't always work that simply because there are so many other factors at play here. So that to me is mistake number one that we just need to get out in front of logically is thinking that all negotiations are the same. A real estate transaction has some unique aspects to it. Um, mistake number two is revealing too much information about yourself as either the buyer or the seller. There's a lot of ways that you can reveal too much information about yourself to the other party. And there's the reason for this is that there is just a lot of reading between the lines. And you need to just recognize right on the front end that there is a lot of distrust between buyers and sellers. The buyer is assuming you know that the seller is holding back information about the condition of the house that the seller you know is trying to squeeze every every dollar out of the house you know probably cut corners here or there 
Um, the seller is thinking about the buyer. Okay, the buyer is just going to try to beat me down on the price. It's just going to try to nitpick on this and that. It's going to try to get ticky-tack on the repairs. Um, buyers and sellers, particularly in this market, which is a very competitive market, and, and people are, quite frankly, being ticky-tacky, buyers and sellers have a bit of distrust for each other that happens just inherently. It happens inherently on the transaction regardless of any of the specific details of the transaction. It starts off with a trust deficit, okay? Now, the way that you build that trust deficit back is a bit counterintuitive. It's not by revealing more information that builds trust. It's by keeping back information and staying anonymous and simply plugging away at the transaction. This is what I've found. Because once you reveal information to someone that's distrustful, they don't then say, oh, okay, well, this seems like a good person. I think I'm going to trust them more. No, they take that information and they filter it through their lens of distrust. And then they twist that information to make it fit their narrative, basically. The narrative that they have that you are not a trustworthy person and uh, that they should have concerns about you. And so it ends up backfiring uh, oftentimes when you reveal too much information. This is why I don't like it when my clients write letters. Like a buyer client, this is a somewhat, it's not super common, but a somewhat common thing is that buyer clients uh, or buyers in this market will write letters to a seller trying to express how much they like a house or don't like a house. Um, well, I, I guess our focus mostly on that they like this house, perhaps in contrast to some of the other houses that they've looked at. And um, sellers will will read in between the lines and will try to figure out the uh, all the psychology behind these, uh, these different sentences uh, that are written in these letters. And let me tell you, it doesn't work out well for the buyers almost all the time. Those letters do not work. It's, there are some rare moments where there is a connection that happens where the, the buyer and seller, both, you know, the language used in, in the letter just clicks and it just works. But oftentimes, the distrust deficit comes into play and the sellers are like, oh man, these, these people, you know, they sound like they have issues or... They sound like they're going to be problematic or whatever the case may be. It's a very common thing. So when I'm representing a client, I try to uh, reveal, I, I try to paint a picture of my clients with the buyer or the seller that these are just nice, normal, qualified, honest people. And again, I'm trying to be honest in all of this. I don't say things that aren't true, but the things that I reveal uh, typically reveal that my clients are just nice, normal, qualified, honest people that I know well. You know, most uh, the vast majority of my clients I know quite well. I've worked with them for a while, and um, I've had multiple meetings with them. And these people, they're just looking to complete a regular real estate transaction. They're not looking to do anything crazy. They're just looking to buy or to sell a house. And that's it. Keep the party anonymous and keep the... Uh, everything about my relationship with the realtor, because the realtor on the other end of the uh, of the table, they know who I am, so they can. There is already going to be hopefully trust, hopefully not distrust. I have a good relationship with with. 
the vast majority of the realtors around here, they already have uh, hopefully a, an equity in trust in my relationship with them. So I want to keep that relationship the center focus and downplay all the the personal information and relational information with uh, with my clients. They don't need to know that. That's personal information. I don't want that to get twisted. Here's a few examples of things that I've heard realtors do and say, uh, reveal for their clients that oftentimes end up getting twisted. Um, a, a phrase like, they are well-to-do. They, they might say something like this, like, oh man, my, my buyer clients, they are well-to-do. This would be, you know, their third home. They just want to be near their their daughter to be able to come down here during the winter. You know, it's really cold in Maine, um, and and they have a lot of money. This will be a smooth transaction. Um, they're not going to be too picky because, again, they're they're really wealthy. They can buy this with cash. They can they can close it really quickly. Blah blah blah. Um, so I then go back to my seller clients and and tell them that. And my seller clients are like, well, why on earth, if they're so well-to-do, they give us such a, a bad offer, you know? Or it might not even be a bad offer. It may be, you know, maybe $5,000 less than what it's listed at. But now they're hearing how much money these people have. And now they're like, well, forget that. They need to come up uh, on this purchase price. And uh, and so that can be twisted. Maybe uh, here's one. Um, say uh, they're an honest, just an honest Christian family. They're not trying to pull a fast one. They're not trying to do anything shady. This is, you know, they did these repairs to this house and they did it uh, to the best of their abilities and hired qualified people. And there, there's nothing hidden there. These are just good, honest Christian people. I had a realtor once tell me that she doesn't like working with Christians. And she quickly, as soon as she said that, she quickly backtracked. Now, I am all about fair housing. and, and But then she went on for the next 10 minutes about how she doesn't like working Christians. So I don't think she's all about fair housing. Um, and I'm not going to uh, reveal who that was. Um, nor did I r- report her. I'm not the, the fair housing police. She did say some things, like I said, that backtracked a little bit. Um, that if she hadn't said, I probably... Uh, would have had to talk to uh, someone in my office to determine whether this was something to worth reporting. Um, but yeah, too much information that that we don't need to um, to discuss people's religion or anything like that. Keep them anonymous. Um, going into details like or saying something like you know they really can't afford more than you know two hundred thousand. Like you've got this listed for two fifteen, we're offering two hundred. That's that's all they're pre-approved for. That's all they can afford. Um, well, that can come across to the seller that well they don't have any money, and this is going to be an issue. They're they might is their financing going to work out? What issues are we going to have because they don't have any money? Um, here's another one. They've had a couple of deals not work out, and and you know they they love this house. They really want this house. This is their dream home. Like, we just need to make this work. Well, why have they had a couple of deals not work out? And me as a realtor, obviously, I'll ask that. Um, but it, it, there may not be a whole lot of information that she can give me and now, or that he can give me. And, and now it's like, well, I'm going to go back to my clients and report, um, you know, hey, the buyer for your house or the, the people that are looking to buy your house, they, revealed to me that they had a couple of deals not work out. So I don't know what that's all about. I couldn't get a whole lot of information. Um, guess what? 
that's not good. Um, that's not information that you want to reveal without context. Um, here's another one for, for you anal- analytical folks out there. Um, I, I have some clients, particularly investor clients, they will you know, like to break everything down into a spreadsheet and have a very detailed, almost like a, you know, they might have a pro forma, they, you know, do all kinds of different things uh, in spreadsheets, uh, trying to determine how much a house is worth. And I've had some that are like, you know, hey, go ahead and give this information to the seller, show the seller what numbers we're looking at, so that they can see that we're not just making this up. Um, well, there are some times, and, and every situation is different. There might be some times where that's a good strategy, uh, but there are a lot of times where that's revealing too much information. Now they're looking at the spreadsheet and they're seeing, uh, you know, again, feeling like, oh man, this this person is going to be a ticky tack buyer, or this guy is he's too analytical. I've dealt with people with engineer brains like him. Uh, or like her, I know what this is going to be like, and and they're looking at the spreadsheet, and even though it's a non-personal spreadsheet, they're bringing all this personal baggage into it now. You don't want to reveal too much information. I try to keep my clients anonymous, try to keep the personal side of it between me and the other agent, and I've found that that really works the best. All right, number three, making things too complex. Now, this isn't just each negotiation. You want to keep each individual negotiation in a transaction uh, simple and to avoid being too complex. But this also applies to the entire transaction. If the uh, entire transaction is complex in some way, or if, let's say on the front end, I've run into this before, on the front end, just the negotiation on the front end getting the house under contract. There's like multiple rounds of negotiation and all sorts of back and forth and add this language and take this out and do this and do that. Um, That is a bad sign for the rest of the transaction. Remember, there's not just one negotiation that happens. There's multiple rounds of negotiation in a transaction. And when things are complex on the front end or during one of those negotiations, it can end up casting a dark cloud over the entire transaction and can cause, again, some of that distrust to then overshadow uh, the transaction and uh, and to, to make it more difficult and, and potentially even to derail the transaction itself. Um, and ultimately, when, when people are buying a house and when they're negotiating, I mean, it is a complex situation. There are a gazillion reasons why you, why the average buyer might want the seller to come down on the price. Perhaps you know they're only pre-approved up to a certain point, or they want their down payment to be lower, or they're trying to keep their PMI at a certain level, and uh, you know they only have so much to put down on the house. Uh, maybe they uh, are pretty detailed in terms of of looking at the condition of the home. They notice several things that need to be repaired. They notice several things, uh, deferred maintenance that needs to be looked at. Um, you know, maybe uh, this house, they've looked at other houses that are honestly nicer for the same price point, but this one just checks off more of their boxes. But now they're also thinking, well, it, it checks off our boxes and logically it works, but we like it, but we don't love it. We're going to have to do a lot of updating. Um, and so all of these things, right? Now, if I as a realtor go back to the seller and to the listing agent and tell them all of these things. 
here are 10 reasons why we need the, the seller to drop the price by $15,000 um, or whatever the case may be. Guess what? That is going to be, that is going to come across as too complex. Again, they're going to read into it. Uh, they're going to uh, have concerns now of like, okay, is the entire transaction going to be comp this complex? So it needs to be simple. And so I always try to keep things as simple as possible when I'm uh, vouching for my clients. I don't have 10 reasons why, uh, why my clients offer should be accepted. I give a handful of really strong reasons. Um, I don't give 10 specific details on my clients. I give a handful of kind of general, again, anonymous, but one, but reasons, details for my clients to vouch for them that I know will resonate with the agent. Things that are just simple, things that will not get us into the weeds and cause questions and cause concerns. It's very simple to, it's very, uh, sorry, similar to point number two I made about revealing too much information, but specific to uh, when you're actually starting to do the negotiation and the details of the negotiation themselves can end up being too complex. And so when I'm when I'm writing an offer and when I'm uh, or when I'm writing, for instance, a, re a repair request list for one of my buyer clients, um, or when I'm responding to a repair request list that a buyer has presented on one of my listings, responses I always try to keep simple. I will keep my emails as much as possible to one paragraph or less, not getting into the weeds. If I need more, more uh, details than that, that's going to be a phone call that I make to the agent. Um, the way I write my offers, I try to keep them very simple. Try to keep them clean. Don't add, you know, we need all of the, uh, you know, we need you to, to concede this and concede that and include this. Don't include that. The you know, the seller is going to do all of these things. And as a buyer, here's what they offer in return. Listen, this is a competitive market. Simple offers are going to win any day over complex offers. I've had some clients sometimes that they, they want me to add in a lot of, uh, a lot of notes into the language of the contract to make sure that all, all sorts of things are included. Um, and obviously, I will do that. But you have to understand that doing that really weakens your offer, and it just makes it more complex. Realtor is looking at two offers. One of them has all kinds of notes written in, uh, clarifying that seller is going to do all these special things, and the other one doesn't. And they're basically the same in every other way. They're going to accept the simpler offer. So we, I try to make things simple as much as possible on every level of the transaction, from that first phone call to the realtor. I try to keep it simple and memorable to make sure that he or she knows who I am, knows why I'm calling, why my client is serious. And then I continue that process throughout the entire transaction to keep things simple, to avoid going off the rails, making things overly complex. Um, but it takes two to tango. And I need my clients to, uh, to be okay with that and to be willing to have things simple as well. Some some people in their minds, uh, things are very complex and they want that to come across to the other party, uh, perhaps even without them realizing it. Um, and that can really cause a transaction to go haywire. Uh, number four on here is 
making the other party feel betrayed or taken advantage of. And this is this is really, really important because as we mentioned before, a real estate transaction is really personal, it's really emotional, and it's very, very easy for one party to feel betrayed or taken advantage of, particularly if the other party at some point changes their tune or starts going in a different direction from what they originally uh, said that they were going to do. For instance, let's say that a seller uh, portrays a house or a listing agent portrays a house as just being in excellent shape. I mean, this house, they has they have renovated everything and have done everything perfectly. They had a uh, general contractor come in and and they did all these modifications to code. Everything's perfect. Um, then the inspector comes in, and the inspector just finds so many things not done to code. So many things that uh, you know outlets that were installed that aren't working. Electrical issues. There's a plumbing leak um, that clearly the seller knew about, but the seller didn't reveal. All all sorts of different things that uh, the buyers didn't notice on the front end and that the sellers didn't disclose. And while at the same time, the sellers were saying that, uh, you know, in marketing the house, that it's in great condition, guess what? The buyers are going to, to feel a bit betrayed right now. They're going to feel like something is is wrong, like the, this seller lied to them. And, and again, it a lot of this keeps coming back, and there's a reason why it was one of the first things I said, this trust deficit that you have, you have to understand that that uh, comes out in a lot of other ways in the transaction, and and this is one of them. Another example is, um, let's say that um, me as a buyer's agent, I'm representing my buyer client, one of, one of my, again, simple pitches to the listing agent is my client's they love this house. This is the perfect house for them. Um, you know, we've been looking for a while, and and nothing else has really fit uh, the this profile of house that they're looking for. And I just think it's going to be a, a smooth transaction. They're going to, um, you know, be easygoing. Um, obviously, we're going to do our inspections and all of that, but all indications are that, that they just really love this house. And it's just going to be a smooth transaction and we can just get this thing closed and move on to the next one, right? That's a compelling pitch to an agent because uh, listing agents, they just want to sell the house and uh, just move on to the next one. So we do that. We get that under contract. And uh, then my clients, it turns out that uh, they start having some buyer's remorse. They are like, uh, you know well, we paid a little bit too much, maybe, I don't know. It was a multiple offer situation. Are we sure that we didn't, you know, give them more than what we needed to? And and now uh, the buyers who were so excited about the property before, obviously I, I didn't lie about that when I was talking to the agent. The buyers were excited. Um, and and, I, and by the way, I don't have a specific case in mind that I'm, I'm not thinking about a specific client as I'm saying this. this is just a a general scenario um but you know now the buyers start to sour on, on the property or, or whatever the case they're not as, ex, as excited as they were before and so now that starts to come out so the inspection is done uh the inspector finds you know normal things that the inspector finds 
a lot of ticky tack things that aren't very important. You know, maybe a, a closet door that doesn't close properly. You know, you've got a uh, toilet uh, that's slightly crooked but is fully functioning. You know, all of these different things that inspectors find. Well, now the buyers, because they uh, are starting to sour on the property, they still want it, um, but they feel like, uh, maybe we spent too much, we didn't negotiate right on the front end, or whatever the case may be, uh, whether it's right or wrong, um, they say, you know what, we want, put, you know, here's 35 things from the inspection report. We want you to ask for them to fix all of these things. Um, that's not a normal, I mean, that would be multiple pages of repairs that we're asking for a seller to do. And if the house is in good shape and we're just talking about, about a bunch of ticky-tack things, seller is going to feel betrayed. Seller is going to say, what's going on here? We we had this buyer client that loved the house, and now they're asking for, for all these silly things? Like, what the heck? No, we're not going to do all of that. Do they want the house or not? Now they don't want to do any repairs. You've now completely shot yourself in the foot. You've betrayed or, or you know, taken advantage of, of the situation. Uh, at least in, in your mind, you're trying to do that. And now you've got a seller that's upset, angry, ticked off. Seller doesn't want to do anything now. Now you've completely shot yourself in the foot. And so we have to be careful that we don't uh, go too far, uh, overuse our leverage, so to speak, and overplay your hand and get in a situation where you take advantage or, or betray the other party. Here's one that, that has happened to me before, right? We have a 100-year flood, um, a very rare weather event where flooding occurs. And after the flood, guess what? Every single crawl space and basement in the area has water in it. That is what happens when a 100-year flood happens Water ends up in places where it normally doesn't. I had you, you can have wind-driven rain. We talked about this in our, our previous episode weeks ago, um, really months ago, about storm season. Wind-driven rain. I've had this uh, this year. We've had a lot of weird weather events. I had wind-driven rain come into my garage. I've, I've got a water spot in my garage that, you know, my roof is perfectly fine. It's like a two, two three-year-old roof. Uh, but I've got a water spot in my garage because rain swirled in a weird direction during a very odd storm, and it it came in uh, through one of the eaves uh, in my garage. So you've got a rare flooding event, and there's a little bit of water in the crawl space. And guess what happens? The buyers just, the timing was just right that this happened right before the inspection. The inspector flags, there's a little bit of water the the wood moisture level in the house is normal, okay? So that's really the main thing that you're looking at is the wood moisture level. That tells you whether there's an actual moisture problem or not. He says, yes, that's that's normal, but we have a little bit of standing water in a corner of the crawl space. And now the buyers are like, ooh, we have a situation here. We can use this to our advantage, can't we? Can't we, you know, water in a crawl space, that's hard to get out. I mean, we might have to do a French drain. We might have to do a sump pump. I mean, there's all kinds of things that can cost hundreds or thousands of dollars that we might have to do now. So, um, Stan, how about you go back to them and as part of this, tell them that they need to pay for $2,000 of our closing costs because that's what it's going to cost for us to have to remedy this situation potentially. Um, listen, 
that's a that's a bad idea. You've you've now overplayed your hand. All right. And again, every situation is different. But when we're talking about a rare weather event, a very rare weather event that happens, and now you're trying to get a seller to make concessions that they wouldn't have made 99 out of 100 other years. This is the 100-year flood. Um, The seller is going to feel betrayed. They're going to feel like you're taking advantage of them. And guess what? It's going to send the transaction oftentimes in the wrong direction. And now your distrust deficit has gotten even bigger. Now, they're rather than you know, kind of reading into situations here and there. Now they're reading into every situation. Now they're expecting you to to try to overplay your hand, try to leverage every situation, to try to uh, do things at every turn that will benefit you and hurt them. That's what they're thinking. Same thing it can happen uh, with the buyer if the seller tries to overplay their hand as well. And it's important to understand just because you have leverage doesn't mean you need to exploit it. There is a delicate balance there and a fine line. There are times when you absolutely need to exhaust every drop of leverage that you have in in a real estate transaction. But there are times when that can be the worst thing for the transaction and where you can actually, like I said, overplay your hand and completely derail the transaction cause there to be distrust the entire rest of the way, cause the other party to not be happy. And I've had situations where this happens. And guess what? The buyer and the seller, they have to, they get to closing, they have to sit at different tables because they are so fed up with each other. They've never met, but just everything that's happened during the transaction, they cannot sit together at the same table because they're so angry and upset with each other um, by that point. And that's terrible, you know? That's a terrible way to to buy a house. That's a terrible way to sell a house. Um, we want to make sure that the that we use the leverage that we have, but also that we don't derail the transaction in the process of, of overplaying the leverage that we have. And so uh, that's, a, that's a fine line. I try to discuss that and work through that with my clients and, and be reasonable. Come up with a way to make sure that you're not leaving money or leaving repairs or whatever the case may be on the table while also making sure that you're uh, playing fair, that you're actually uh, acting in a way that's responsible, acting in a way that will build trust rather than take away more trust, um, and and ultimately the, that the way that you operate keeps the transaction on the right tracks. Number five, thinking too short term. And and again, these all kind of build on each other. Um, This is the fifth and final uh, biggest mistake you can make in a real estate negotiation is thinking too short term. And what I mean by that is you might think, okay, this this is just one little negotiation. This isn't going to really impact anything else. I have the leverage if this worst case scenario, this doesn't work out, we're just moving on to something else. There's always other fish in the sea. Um, we're, we're not going to sweat it if, for whatever reason, this negotiation doesn't work out, this transaction doesn't work out. We'll just move on. And having that kind of take it or leave it 
mindset um, can be helpful. That can that can make uh, put you in a situation where you're not boxed in. Um, so that in and of itself isn't bad. But thinking that you have nothing to lose. That's what I hear sometimes. Well, got nothing to lose. Let's just try this. Um, no, no, no. You always have something to lose. Okay? Even if you feel like losing out on the house isn't that big of a deal or losing out on the property isn't that big of a deal, there's always something else that can be lost. And you have to make sure that you don't think too short term in the transaction. Think about this. There's a lot of real estate transactions that fall through, a lot of them. And a lot of them are in multiple offer situations. So there is a decent probability if you put an offer in on a house and it's multiple offers and they accept an offer that is higher than yours, you miss out on it, there's a decent chance that they uh, will end up having that fall through at some point and they'll come crawling back and giving you the opportunity to buy it again. If you were a complete turnoff during the negotiation the first go around when they didn't accept the offer, they might not come back to you and give you that second chance to get that house. I've had so many situations over the years where the listing agent for um, buyer clients or even me as a buyer where uh, we put offers in, they didn't get accepted, they accepted a different one, that falls through, and then they come back and give me or my clients the opportunity to purchase again, and the second go around, we're able to. And the only way that we're able to is because we set the right uh, stage right at the beginning, we gave the right impression right at the beginning, they were close to accepting our offer, but they, they thought that maybe they could just get a little bit more money by accepting this other person's offer, it didn't work out, now they, they've come back to our, their senses and they're like, you know what, we should have just gone with these people to begin with. Um, you've got to remember that, that that is a very good possibility. That happens quite a bit. And you can't think too short term. Don't go in guns blazing into that negotiation and just completely turn people off. You may end up in a situation where you don't get a second chance at a house that you should have gotten a second chance at because of the way you acted the first go around. Um Additionally, uh, you may find yourself where you have to deal with that agent again. I mean, particularly if you're an investor client, you're going to find that uh, you're dealing with uh, a lot of the same listing agents over and over again. Uh, but even if you're not, even if you're just looking for a home to be an owner-occupant in, let's say that you have a, a transaction or just a negotiation uh, that goes poorly with an agent, what happens if you find another house that that ha agent has listed um, and you have to go back to negotiating with them? Now that you're dealing with a different seller, probably, but the same agent. And this is a small market here in Greenville. That's very, very possible. And on top of that, because it's a small market, agents talk to each other, right? And let's be honest here. I was, I was just talking to a guy the other day and he said he worked for a company that does real estate investing. Uh, he used to work for a company that does real estate investing in Greenville. And he mentioned the company name and I immediately knew who it was. And it immediately put a bad taste in my mouth. This is the company that puts a bunch of lowball offers in on properties. And I bet if I went to 10 agents uh, that are full-time real estate agents, most uh, real estate agents around here are not full-time, you should know. 
Um, but if I went to 10 full-time real estate agents, I bet that eight of them would immediately know the name of this company and it would put a bad taste in their mouth. This, this company, their strategy has been too short-term of a strategy and word gets out. People in a small market like this, agents talk, sellers talk, investors talk. There are a ton of, uh, of different groups that meet to talk about real estate and word gets out and you can't think too short-term. You've got to think big picture for that transaction, big picture for potential future transactions. And if you think too short-term, you're going to end up hurting yourself in the long run. And so I always encourage my clients, a lot of this is just having empathy. It's just thinking about the other party, making sure that you keep everyone's goals and everyone's uh, emotions and objectives and whatnot in mind. It's very possible to do that and still protect your own interests. That's the tightrope that we're trying to, to walk when we're performing a real estate transaction, keeping everyone happy, keeping the transaction on the right track, making sure that my clients get what they need while at the same time trying to give the other party uh, a sense that this is going in the right direction for them as well. Because if they don't get that sense, it's not going to be a good transaction and it could have a, a, a bigger impact on you as a buyer or seller down the road. That is it for today's episode. I thought I, I hope that was helpful uh, to think through negotiation tactics for real estate. Uh, there will be no episode next week. Enjoy your Thanksgiving. Don't do anything too crazy. Wear a mask if you have conditions that require you to wear a mask. Don't get together in too close quarters. I, listen, I don't care. You get together with whoever you want to get together. I'm not uh, an, a totalitarian here trying to tell you what to do. Enjoy your Thanksgiving. Stay safe. We'll talk in a couple of weeks. 